This is One in 59, a presentation of Anderson Center for Autism. One in 59 is a weekly show devoted to topics related to autism spectrum disorder. Good morning and welcome to One in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, Chief Development Officer at Anderson Center for Autism. And I'm speaking this morning with Christopher Menente, who is the Executive Director of the Rutgers Center for Adult Autism Services and an Assistant Professor of Clinical Practice also at Rutgers in New Jersey. And Chris, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being on the show. Uh, we were just kind of catching up a little bit, just ran into each other out in Phoenix, a little far from home. And uh, But, you know, I always know it's going to be, uh, you're going to be a good guest if we end up at the same uh, event, because we're all focused on on very similar things. Um, and right now, I know that we would both agree that a significant challenge in the field of autism uh, is related to the growing number of adults with autism, the number growing really only by I guess primarily because for years and years and years and years, I think there's been a myth that uh, autism is a childhood disability and that, you know, once you're out of school, you don't have autism anymore. And the world's eyes are being uh, opened to the idea and the fact that we need to find ways to support adults living with autism in a different way than we have been because it's just maybe not cutting it quite as, uh, as much as we need. So that's my little soapbox for the moment. But Chris, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background? and then we'll get into, um, you know, what you're doing at Rutgers. Absolutely. Thanks. Yeah. And and so I I agree that it is is kind of wild that, um, you know, you can kind of fill a single room with, you know, the programs in the U.S. and the world, frankly, um, that are driving innovation in the adult autism services space. And uh, yeah, so we were were just at this amazing leadership symposium put on by, you know, First Place Phoenix uh, and Denise Resnick out there. And uh, it it was so great to hear about about all of the, the projects that are emerging, but it is very much kind of like, you know, just now a, a case of like too little too late. Not that everyone is, isn't doing amazing things and that kind of momentum starting to shift in this area, but this has been a problem and a crisis that's existed for decades now in that adults with autism throughout our country and the world haven't had access to high-quality services and supports for some time. And, you know, right now it's estimated that there's over 5 million adults with autism in the U.S. And Eliza, as you mentioned, um, every year about 50,000 individuals graduate from their educational entitlement into the adult service system, where in some states means they graduate to nothing. Um, So this is just an issue um, that's been compounding um, over decades and and only now starting to get um, attention, which, again, is, um, you know, it's really a a, a national crisis in that sense. Um, and, And for those of us that are working in this space, there couldn't be um, enough urgency, you know, surrounding the need for additional funding and attention uh, to really push innovation in this space. I, I, I agree with you. And I think um, it did stand out to me when we were in Phoenix that there were people from throughout the country. There were also people from throughout the world. So this is not a, a United States, you know, a, a United States of America, you know, specific issue. This is, you know, this, this, I think that both the problem exists everywhere. The solutions probably exist everywhere. And so, um, as many people in those rooms that we were in were sort of 
talking around and about it it takes it takes expertise from so many different areas the key, one of the people we heard speak uh, over those few days was an architect from Australia who really right. had a focus on what it takes to to develop spaces living spaces and learning spaces for for adults with autism and there's so many nuances it's it's fascinating um, as well as you know s- severely challenging the other thing that I noticed and I, I wonder your perspective on this is that you you said that it's really only recently that we're seeing types of you know innovation that obviously require high levels of funding which also um, we don't have in place quite yet to the degree needed but what has been around for quite a long time is parents and parents advocating well ahead of sort of crisis level, you know, um, national and international crisis level awareness that this is going to be a problem. And I think that's who I've been hearing about this from for years is parents recognizing that as they age, so do their children. And I think they're often the first ones to recognize that I don't know what's going to happen. And it always seems to happen right when their child is sort of getting, quote unquote, settled into their school system. They've, they've found the right school program. They found whether it's residential or day or public or private, they found something that works and they might be sort of content for a short period of time. And all of a sudden that mortality, that cliff of adulthood is right in their face. So so what have you seen or, or experienced when it comes to family advocacy starting to, I guess maybe, is it, are they bridging the gap? Are they reaching across to governments and and different types of uh, funding opportunities that are there or reaching to other families to strengthen their message? What's happening in in that, within that group? Yeah, that's a great question because I I do think that some of the momentum that we've gained in terms of more attention and resources being put towards um, adult services has come um, from actually bridging the gap between the adult services world and the school services world, right? I think historically, um, parents and families have had um, a very specific focus on day-to-day, month-to-month, year-to-year services for their kids while they're school-aged um, under their educational entitlement, which makes sense because as um, most of us who work in the educational or services, human services field know, like often even though you have this great entitlement under IDA and these resources, things are rarely perfect, and it still requires a ton of advocacy and oversight. Um, so like, I, I think historically a lot of parents haven't even really thought about what's going to happen um, to their son or daughter in, at age 21 when that entitlement expires until they're right upon it, um, which I think, again, the bridge and the shift that, that has occurred that I've seen over the last decade is that parents um, with school-age kids on the spectrum have become much more savvy about adult services and much more involved in advocacy, which, you know, and when I, when I go out and give talks at, at schools in particular, um, and I'm speaking to these families and parents who are trying to like prepare themselves for this transition, you know, I, I encourage them to, to get involved in advocacy and have a sense of urgency about, you know, the lack of resources in adult services as early as elementary school, right? Mm-hmm. Because again, all of these things, all of these systems, all of these resources, all of this funding, this workforce of, you know, highly trained practitioners to specialize in working with adults versus kids, all of this takes um, an astronomical amount of time and effort and resources and none of it happens overnight. So, um, it, you know, I, I think 
you know, for adults, we're uh, a good parallel to draw is we're essentially back uh, where, you know, school age services for kids with disabilities was uh, in the 1970s before the uh, passage of what is now known as IDEA, right? So, mm -hmm. um, you know, today there there is no real, you know, federal legislation that protects adults with um, disabilities or adults with autism in particular um, in terms of, you know, their, their right to have um, services that are essentially accommodations for accessibility to their communities, which again, for kids in 1970, it was the same. There wasn't rights for those kids to have accommodations for accessibility to their public school community. So yeah, so I think for me, the, the most important message to get out there is, like, even if you're not, even if your son or daughter isn't 18 or 19 or 20, even if your son or daughter is three years old, yeah. this is something you should care about. And, and again, not in a peripheral way, but, you know, you, you should be active, even though you have your hands full in managing, you know, your child's child study team at school, mm -hmm. like this is still something that you should be involved in. And I, I don't really think that we're going to be able to make um, huge headway nationally um, in terms of federal legislation until everyone who this, this issue touches, you know, really stands up and says enough is enough. Because, <laughs> like I said, this is a crisis that has existed for decades. And, and from a legislative perspective, while there are several, you know, people who are, are supportive and, and vocal, there's been very little done in terms of tangible federal legislation that would provide adequate protections and services for this population. Yeah, I, I would I would agree with that as well. I, I was just talking to somebody also um, earlier today about healthcare um, and a similar model where, you know, there have been so many strides in within pediatrics about early diagnosis and tools and assessments and, uh, you know, understanding of, of what to look for and listening to parents who are saying, I, you know, I don't have a name for this, but this is kind of what I'm seeing and it doesn't seem right. And having pediatricians be much better equipped at, at, at helping to gain, have families gain better access to early intervention and other uh, medical services at an earlier age. And a similar issue with, you know, when are we going to see kind of um, general practitioners and, and folks who are treating and working with adults kind of, you know, follow that type of model with, you know, attention to that. So it's interesting to me when you when you're talking about like, you know, a big picture, I'm just saying to myself, well, you know, there's got to be that question out there about there are models here in existence. We've seen what happened with, you know, within school accessibility, like you were using that example. Why haven't we followed that model to to help develop services and programs and, and a structure for sustainability for those uh, adults um, with autism? And, and I'm going to pose this provocative question to you, Chris. Do you think it's because the folks who, who could provide those tangible changes honestly just don't know what to do? Yes. I, I think that that's absolutely part of the part of the situation um, is that they don't know what to do. The other issue is a philosophical one, um, and this isn't limited just to adults with autism, but adults with uh, disabilities in general. That there is still really invasive, discriminatory practice and thinking, like interwoven throughout um, the institution of our country, right? And that is, in in general, when uh, in general the common conception about people with disabilities and adults with autism in particular is that they don't have a ton of value to add okay mm -hmm. um, like the, the, these folks are really and and what you know and, and and the people that perpetuate these conceptions like they're not bad people they don't wish anyone ill harm they're not malicious they're not going out 
saying, I hate people with autism, but they might have this, you know, underlying bias or conception that, you know, people with autism are, are consumers, right? And this is a term that, that's commonly used to describe oh, adults with mm-hmm. developmental disabilities. And I think often, like, you know, the, the word consumer is, 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 you know, at face value is meant to be, oh, this is a consumer in terms of, like, you know, they can purchase what they need and they can get access to resources. Another way of looking at that is they're consumers of resources, yeah. right? And, and so I think, like, this is really prevalent, this underlying bias or, or you know, conception that adults with disabilities have little value to add in terms of employment or societally in general, and they cost a lot. Right. They're consumers of resources. So I, I think probably the biggest initial hurdle is that perspective in that, you know, the first knee-jerk reaction is like, oh, that's fine and good that, you know, you guys have some innovative models of how you want to help these people live their best adult lives, but what's it going to cost? And then people see maybe the, the initial price tag of these things, and they say, well, we can never pay for that, right? And again, they, they have that reaction without, you know, considering the cost of all of the, the reactive measures um, that are currently being taken, where, you know, adults with autism are essentially using emergency rooms as primary care doctors, or, right. you know, the, the, the cost of police involvement, or the cost, the long-term cost of unemployment for these five million people, right? Because, of course, adults with autism currently have what's estimated to be, you know, an 80 percent unemployment rate nationally, right? And not seeing the value that a huge amount of those people could be contributing um, if only given, you know, the resources and opportunities that they would need to succeed. So, again, I I think the biggest hurdle is a philosophical one. It's also, you know, this practice in in politics and government of um, taking a reactive stance to, like, human human rights, human services, you know, type issues. Like, those are the things that, you know, you, you end up being able to dedicate, you know, whatever discretionary money you have left over, right, after you take care of the quote-unquote things that are, you know, fundamentally important to mm-hmm. the government and, and not actually seeing this as being a critical, crucial um, initiative that, uh, for our government in general, right? Because, again, while this is already an enormous problem, I think the message has to be if something isn't done now, it's, it's, it's going to be a problem that is going to impact, right, the very fabric of our society, mm-hmm. right, that it has to rise to a top priority issue and not just be one of these kind of peripheral, you know, feel-good kind of, you know, charitable thing that, you know, a, a legislator does on autism awareness uh, months. But, but again, it, it should, it, we really, I, I think as a field, and this is something that comes up a lot, we, we really need to start quantifying, um, you know, these costs. In a, in a very digestible way, you know, for people who aren't statisticians or finance people, but, you know, again, legislators and politicians, where they can actually understand, oh, you know, by proactively investing in, you know, developing the infrastructure and training models, you know, for these systems that are going to result in this 5 million-plus citizens actually leading their best adult life versus, um, like, having to spend it all, the, probably a similar amount of money in a reactive way, where most of these 5 million people are unhappy and have comorbid, you know, psychological health issues and are dependent on their parents or their other family members who are also impacted in terms of physical, mental health and earning potential, right? I think until we can actually hammer that home in a very concrete and digestible way, we're going to continue to have that issue. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the question is, who's best 
position to kind of pick up the mantle and, 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 and represent the entire field of, of adult autism services. And then, you know, of course, we can circle into the current kind of debate and controversy between various groups, right, like ASIN, right, the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, mm-hmm. or Autism Speaks, or, you know, the Council for Individuals with Autism, National Council for Severe Autism, right? And, and so, like, so while we need to kind of get our act together and have, you know, a, a concrete message about why this is so important, there continues to be this kind of internal controversy that divides us and makes it difficult to do that. Well, I, I'm glad I asked you that question because that is that is clearly your passion. I but I you know agree with what you're what you're saying, and I think the philosophical point is is really well made. We're going to take a quick break, Chris, and when we come back, I just want to hear you talk about what's going on at the Rutgers Center for Adult Autism Services and and um, and what the future of that program may look like in in your mind. Wonderful. Okay, this is one in fifty nine, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host Eliza Bozenski, and we'll be right back. Have you driven by Anderson Center for Autism? Have you ever wondered what we're all about? Well, we're a state of the art educational program. We're a nurturing home away from home. We're a community resource. We're a training center for people from all corners of the globe. We're a deeply devoted family of professionals who utilize evidence based practices to optimize the quality of life for people with autism. And we're here for you. Call us today at eight. 8- 845-889-4034 or visit us online at andersoncenterforautism.org to learn more. Welcome back to 1 in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, and I'm talking this morning with Christopher Menente, who is an assistant professor of clinical practice and the executive director of Rutgers Center for Adult Autism Services at Rutgers University in New Jersey. And Chris, in our last eight minutes or so here for the interview, could you talk to us about what the Rutgers Center for Adult Autism Services is, what you're doing there, and, and maybe some plans for the future? Absolutely. Yeah. So here at the Rutgers Graduate School of Applied and Professional Psychology, there is such a rich and long history of supporting individuals with autism and their families. And of course, that started back in 1972 with Dr. Sandra Harris and the founding of the Douglas Developmental Disability Center as uh, the country's first university-based behavior analytic program um, for individuals with autism. And, you know, since 1972, again, three years prior to the first passage of what we now know as IDA, the, the DDDC has been really, you know, kind of setting the standard as to what high-quality services and support looks like for children with autism who are school-aged. And in addition to having model programs, they've also done just an amazing job of creating an enormous workforce of highly trained practitioners to um, work in New Jersey with kids with autism throughout a bunch of private and, and public school environments. And, you know, that, and in addition, in addition to that, um, the DDC has also kind of pushed the envelope in terms of, you know, research related to best practice. So I think the RCAS, the Rutgers Center for Adult Autism Services, kind of follows that model that the DDC established so long ago, mm-hmm. where we have a focus on service in creating, you know, the best model programs that are possible where, you know, we can show what individuals with autism are are capable of if just given the resources and opportunities that they need to succeed. So service, then training. Um, We exist here at Rutgers University, which, of course, is an enormous, you know, public state uh, university with 70,000 students. So we're looking to train the next generation of practitioners who want to specialize in working with adults on the spectrum in innovative models, right? We're not looking to just teach people how to, you know, kind of 
keep the traditional day habilitation model in place where it's center-based and, you know, you have, uh, you know, one to three or one to five ratios and people are just kind of sitting around killing time, right? We want to kind of train the, the future practitioners who want to specialize in this who are going to continue to, like, pick up the ball and run with it I mean, creating, uh, you know, to, the, the programs of tomorrow that exist in communities for adults with autism. So we're doing that. Um, we're training right now about a half a dozen students every semester across disciplines. I mean, those students uh, get training in a hands-on apprenticeship model with, uh, you know, some of our, our highly, highly qualified support staff. And then, of course, the third prong of our mission is research, where, as we know, there's just a huge lack of research um, related to, you know, effective practices specifically for adults um, versus children, where, of course, children in school environments historically is where the mo- most of the attention has been placed um, on research. So we have multiple um, subunits of the RCIS currently, and our first and flagship program is called SCALE. That is uh, supporting c- uh, community accessibility through leisure and employment, and currently we have 12 adults with autism in our SCALE program, and those 12 adults are extremely diverse in terms of their support needs and abilities and interests. You know, we have adults, among those 12, we have adults who have really um, significant support needs, who are non-vocal, who have long-standing histories uh, of, you know, severe, complex, challenging behavior. And we also have, you know, people with autism who have college degrees and driver's licenses, right, and who have, you know, really sophisticated, you know, communicative and social repertoires. So all being served in the same program, um, all of whom are competitively employed at Rutgers University in a wide range of jobs and, you know, also kind of achieving all kinds of, you know, social relationship, leisure, transportation goals that each individual has the opportunity to kind of set with themselves to the degree that that's appropriate and possible um, with their family and and staff members. So that's our first and flagship program called SCALE, and uh, we'll we'll be looking to expand um, that program uh, to support up to about 40 to 80 individuals, and that, of course, um, will happen over the next decade or so that we'll we'll strategically um, admit people into that program. And that program is a lifetime program for those who need it, right? So, um, of course, you don't graduate from adulthood, right, which is also, you know, kind of part of the issue um, in terms of funding and and, and resources. And, yeah, so... um, So, can I interrupt? Chris, do you see, just based on what you said earlier before the break, too, is it not, this is a terrible pun, but um, I'm good Mm -hmm. at terrible puns. So, is scale scalable? Is it something that you're looking to... There you um, have it. Yeah. absolutely perfect question, because <laughs> yeah, that's exactly why it's named that. So, so it's named scale because the program can be scaled up or scaled down okay. based on individual needs, right? It can be scaled up to provide intensive supports or scaled down um, to provide just a little bit of support. Okay. Um, and, and again, that speaks to the diversity of the people in the program. And, and so like, there are a lot of things that make our program unique, and, and, some, and, and I think um, part of that is kind of the range of, of, of people that we support successfully. But the other part of that is, you know, everything we do is completely individualized and not individualized as a buzzword, right, as it is typically used in special education environments right. where, you know, you have an individualized education plan where really that doesn't mean that someone's <laughs> receiving individualized services. That means that services are being differentiated to the extent that it's possible um, given the resources that that school or organization has at that time, okay. right? That individual still has to go to class with another group of students. Mm-hmm. They still have, like, one teacher in the room. They still have to go to a school building, right? If, they, if it was truly individualized, instruction could happen anywhere, mm-hmm. right, with anyone at any time. And that's what we're doing, right? So, you know, our, our program is individualized in the literal sense, 
Um, every participant in our program gets exactly you know what they need to succeed, and success is also defined based on their own personal and individual goals, interests, and aspirations for their life. Well, that so is it's I, also <laughs> scalable on a national scale because yeah. we'd love to replicate the program at other colleges and universities throughout the country. Well, I mean, so I think this has been a great, great conversation because I think you've you've effectively identified very clearly a, a significant challenge now and into the future. But at the same time, we're ending on a note of positivity and hope that there's models out there that are developing and emerging, yours included, that can potentially uh, provide solutions. So we have about 30 seconds left. Can you just throw out where would people go to get more information about um, all of the programs and the and the uh, opportunities going on at Rutgers right now under your leadership? Got it. Yeah, and that's boy, that is uh, that, that that's a. A hard thing to answer because there is so much going on, um, even beyond the Rutgers Center for Adult Autism Services. But if you want more information about the RCAS, our website is a great resource, and that's rcaas.rutgers.edu. And my uh, my email address is right on the front page there, so anyone can email me, and I'd be happy to point them in the right direction if their uh, question or inquiry is better answered by someone else here at Rutgers. Because, um, again, we really just do have so much groundbreaking work going on um, in the field of autism services and research across a number of disciplines that it, that it would be very hard to sum up in, in 30 seconds. Oh, fair enough. But um, So go visit the rcaas.rutgers.edu website and, and get in touch with Chris because I think that you're a wealth of information and, and really... Uh, as as somebody in the in the service provision arm of the work at Anderson Center for Autism, I really just appreciate um, the focus that you're 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 giving to this uh, these issues and and to the adults with autism who, like you said, historically are looked at as um, consumers of resources as opposed to what really is possible and and probable and and has to happen, which is to to change. Um, the way that, that they are viewed in society. So we have to wrap up. Thank you so much, Chris Menente, for being on the show. And uh, good luck with the rest of your work. Thanks, Eliza. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. This is One in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski. And remember, Anderson cares. You've been listening to One in 59, a presentation of Anderson Center for Autism. Join us for another edition of the show at the same time next week. 